Okay, any questions from either this week or last week or anything else? Oh, they need a blank. What's the blank you need, Lee? Okay, one C. Okay. The foolishness of the resurrection. Okay. Um, okay. Anything from this week or last week? Oh, Lois. <laughs> Are the are the 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 passage started with the the Sadducees, mm-hmm. and it, it ended up that the scribes were reluctant to ask questions. Are they the same? Well, I think people? That said, I said in the message. I think that they references the entire group because right, it starts with the Sadducees, and then the scribes. Some of the scribes said, "You have spoken well." None of them. And who's the them? The scribes, the Sadducees. I think, I think it means all of his interlocutors, all of his questioners are done. They're silenced. Um, hey, congratulations. Um, in fact, there's a similar event. Paul, Paul uses this strategy. Um, if you go to Acts 28, you go to Acts 28. This is fascinating. Um, Paul is going to pit them against each other. Remember I said the enemy of my enemy is my friend. There's this temporary allegiance between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. But, you know, as soon as Jesus is dead, um, it seems to end. And Paul plays upon that in Acts in a very clever way. Um, So Acts 28, Paul is being interrogated. And, uh, hold on, where is it? Um, Is it 28? What's the reference in the notes? What is 28? Hold on. No, 23. Sorry, go to Acts 23. I revoco. I'll need my notes here. Okay, Acts 23. This is is just funny. It is written somewhere. In the passage about the trial. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, Oh, this is the one I quoted last week when Paul tells the high priest, you whitewashed tomb, God will strike you. And they said, would you speak thus against the high priest? And um, Paul says in verse 5, I did not know, brothers, that as the high priest, for it is written, he shall not speak evil, or ruler of the people. Look at verse 6. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of the Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. (laughs) Clever. And when he had said this, a division arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided, for the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes and the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit and angel spoke to him? <laughs> They're just rubbing it in the Sadducees' face, man. Um, and the dissension became violent, the tribune. So then the Roman government has to get involved. So Paul was just one. Guys, I'm just here being put on trial for my hope in the resurrection from the dead. And they start infighting so much, the, the tribune has to come in and break it up. So um, it's, 
These guys are only tentative allies as they ally themselves together to take on Jesus. They just, their common hatred of Jesus is so great they put up with it. But it's a very fragile piece which Paul um, very cleverly plays to as he pits them against one another. Um, Alex. Okay. Um, first off, hats off for not using the Sadducee joke the whole morning. I was impressed. I know, right? Okay. Um, <laughs> he would never forget that joke. Okay. Um, one of your points was not all attain to um, the uh, second life. Um, that age. That age. Everyone still exists. Yeah. And that's at the end of verse 38, for all live to him. And so there seems to be a sense yeah. in which... All are still, yeah. No, no, that, no that, that's partly what I was going to get at. In fact, I've written in my notes, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but you could equally say God is still not the God of Ahab and Judas. And I mean, the same logic works if he's, they still are, um, absolutely. That that relationship or lack of relationship continues. No, there's, there's a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And... There, there's no nihilationism where the, the um, un, unrighteous and the unbelieving cease to be. All live to him. He made them, and we all continue to live to him. The question is, do we live to him as his enemies eternally and objects of wrath, or do we live to him as his children? Where are you going with this, though? But is that it? Where are you going? Oh, okay. Well, thanks. Okay. Other thoughts or questions? Do, do you, let me just pause one. Did, did it click? Do you guys get just what a radically tight argument Jesus makes on a small piece of grammar? Because in any language, if you've taken a foreign language, you know that the most commonly, one of the most commonly used words in any language is the verb to be. It's, it's the most flexible. It's the most... Um, so it's not like you're dealing with some precise technical term. You know, you're dealing with one of the most commonly used words. And if Jesus can hang the weight of his entire argument, an argument that silences his adversaries, it, that, that makes him afraid to answer them, on that, that's some pretty great confidence in the literal, verbal inerrancy of Scripture, word for word. Um, and so that's where I take my cue. Okay, then I guess that's the level of precision and weight the text can hold. Paul in Galatians makes an argument based upon the fact that God's promise to Abraham was to give him a seed and not seeds plural. There the entire argument hinges on singular plural. It was not to seeds, but to seed. And he's saying the promise is Christ come through Abraham. But he makes his entire argument based upon that one little thing. But it's important for us to think through these things because if someone comes and says, hey, you're taking the Bible too literally, you're, you're, what's the term? You're, they accuse you of bibliolatry, made an idol out of the Bible. That could have some validity to it. So what we need to do is check our practices and check our approach against Scripture and say, okay, is there warrant in the text for treating the text with this level of accuracy? And the answer is absolutely there is. Absolutely there is. And so passages like this, I just find very, you know, because I'll have someone, um, I, I've gotten into discussions with, with some of the teachers down the road, and they'll tell me that inerrancy is a post-Reformation Enlightenment doctrine. 
And I just play dumb and say, I, I don't know about that. I just want to read my Bible like Jesus. And um, the, the thought, by the way, that the Enlightenment would produce inerrancy as a doctrine is laughable. Enlightenment's all anti-supernaturalism, which is why, and by the way, here's a, another tip. This is for free. Um, well, the reason they argue that inerrancy is an Enlightenment doctrine is until the Reformation, until Enlightenment, you don't get the books defending inerrancy. That's because it was assumed until then, and only when Enlightenment came around and anti-supernaturalism came around was there a need to defend the Scripture against the attacks. And so, yeah, you're right, admittedly. One, by the same logic, you could argue 50 years from now that marriage as a union between one man and one woman is a 21st century construct because that's when all the books arguing for it came out. No, that's when it got attacked. And so that's when the defense was rallied. It's the same logic. Um, but we, we don't, I mean, I, I think that modern statements on inerrancy are helpful. The Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy is very helpful. But we want to be, first and foremost, biblical. And so that's why I find it so helpful and encouraging to see Jesus doing this. Greg. That presupposes that we're not learning from the message or the book, the message, gotcha. uh, the yes. Good News Bible, or, yep. or some of those that maybe don't have the same yep. uh, authority. Let me, let me speak to that then, yes. Today, in most modern translations, there are two, um, two philosophies, translation philosophies, that to varying degrees are followed. And I'd recommend you, maybe this afternoon, read the foreword in your Bible. Every Bible that I've ever seen, the publisher and the committee who made it will, quite frankly, quite openly, tell you their translation philosophy. See, here's the ESV's one right there. They'll tell you. Here's the principles we used in translation. And so, the, the two big categories are dynamic equivalence and formal equivalence. And so translators of a dynamic equivalence say our goal is to translate not word for word but thought for thought. And right off the bat when Jesus is making arguments based on hinging on words. Now say something like the NIV. The NIV is probably the most conservative um, application of dynamic equivalence. And so at the end of the day, the NIV turns out to be a decent translation. It's not bad. But there are definitely some spots where they, what the NIV likes doing is taking long sentences and making them into shorter sentences. And so you lose coordinating conjunctions when that happens. Words like so that, therefore, because, just becomes a period new sentence. And so if you read through Paul, you'll notice in Romans, a lot of Paul's argument in Romans, because Paul will have sentences that run two or three verses, become nice, neat, it's easier English, but you lose some of that accuracy. So yeah, I, I don't favor, and I would, I would advise against using any dynamic equivalence. Um, Greg referenced Eugene Peterson's The Message, which isn't even a translation, it's a paraphrase. And paraphrases have their value. I mean, every Sunday, I am paraphrasing scripture as I teach. And when The Message was first published, it was published not as a translation, but as a paraphrase. And as a paraphrase, what you're basically getting is Eugene Peterson putting it in his own words, here's what I think he's saying. And there's a value to that. He's pithy at times. He, he states things in pithy ways, and that's useful. The message is not a translation. It simply isn't. It is a paraphrase. My only complaint with the message is they're now marketing it as a translation, which it is not. 
Um, and so you will never be able to make these types of arguments that Jesus is making with the translation of the message or the New Living Translation or things like that. They can have devotional use. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with them in that sense, but when you're doing your detailed study, you want the other translation philosophy, which is formal equivalence. What formal equivalence states, wherever possible, they desire to translate word for word. Now, admittedly, you can't always do that. Does anyone here know any Spanish? Okay, what does de nada mean? Literally, what's it mean? Of nothing. So when you translate de nada, a literalist, wooden translation would be of nothing. A better translation is you're welcome, right? So there are idioms and figures of speech and things like that that you can't, it's unhelpful to translate word for word. But what a formal equivalent says is we want to do that as little as possible. Our goal, whenever possible, is to translate word for word. And so translations in the formal equivalents would be like the New American Standard, New King James, ESV, Holman Christian Standard. Those are all formal equivalents. The King James, formal equivalents. And I heartily recommend using formal equivalents translations for your primary study. The, the other tip I'd give as well is I'd get two or more formal equivalents translations. Um, and if you're going to do detailed study. Because where the ESV and the New American Standard and the New King James line up, in the way they render something, you can be pretty confident that's a good translation. And sometimes you'll see them split off. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians 7 where the Greek literally is virgin. And you're supposed to know what that means. If any man thinks he's behaving inappropriately towards his virgin. And if you read, I forget which one does which, but one translation says virgin daughter, another says betrothed. Those are different, right? So if you're reading along in multiple formal equivalent translations, you'll see the divergence, and then you'll slow down and go, what's going on here? And then you can you know, grab a footnote or get a Bible dictionary or something and realize, oh, okay, there is no corollary English for your virgin. And so the translators, are, the translators are trying to guess, their best guess at what the referent of your virgin is. Is it your virgin daughter? Is it your fiancé? Those are the two major options, and that explains the disparity. But you wouldn't pick that up if you were only reading one English translation. So my best recommendation would be to get, for, for study, um, two formal equivalence translations and read them in parallel. I mean, and use the others for devotional uses. That's fine. I'm not saying they're bad in that sense. Just know what they are and don't demand of them a level of precision and accuracy they aren't claiming to give. Does that make sense? So if you, I, I've enjoyed reading the new, the, living, the new Living Translations, Old Testament narratives and stuff, just to get the flow of things. That's cool. There's a use for that stuff. But Jesus makes it clear, this is the level of precision Scripture's at, which brings me to the conviction that if we're going to... Okay, so go to Isaiah 65 or 66. I'm going to argue for formal equivalence. The word, the attempt to do word-for-word translation. Um, Isaiah 66, here we go, 66, last chapter of Isaiah. Verse 1 and verse 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is this house that you would build for me? Well, it's a pretty big, gold-encrusted temple. I mean, it's pretty impressive. The Queen of Sheba came and she was impressed. God's not impressed. You, you, didn't, you didn't impress God with the architecture. 
All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. What does impress God? But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You want to get God's attention, make him pick up and take notice? It's not going to be because of your architecture. Even Solomon's temple in all its glory doesn't impress God. I mean, he was pleased with it, but it's not like, oh, wow. That's, wow. What does God sit up and take notice? Notice of two things. A contrite heart, broken spirit and a contrite heart, you will not despise, and trembling at his word, taking his word very, very, very seriously. And so I think then to take God's word seriously means that we need to read it, at least when we're reading it for, for study, as accurately as our reading level allows Right, So I'm glad we've got Bibles written at third grade reading levels. There are people, that's as good as, as far as they can go. And that's great. Um, and I'm glad we've got Bibles in all these different reading levels. But if you've got a, a 12th grade reading level, but you like reading the Bible at an 8th grade level because it's easier, I don't think you're trembling at God's word sufficiently. Um, does that make sense? In other words, if Jesus is modeling for us the, the depth of accuracy and what treasures are there when we deal with it word for word, and you can do that, but you don't want to do that, I think you're just being lazy. I, I've had the ability to take some Greek and some Hebrew, and so it, for me, preparing a message on Sunday morning, if I'm not using that, um, if I'm not digging into that, and that takes work, you know, you got to keep up on it, and it's hard, you know, luo, lues, lue, luamen, luete, luusi, you know, you go through your stuff, but I've had the ability to learn that, so for me to tremble at God's word, I've got to take it serious enough to dig into that stuff. Um, at least for when we're really trying to grapple and study to show ourselves approved. We're taking it seriously. We're trembling at his word. So any questions on that? I, I don't want to say there isn't a place to the other translations, but um, most of the time when I talk to people who are reading more of the dynamic equivalents, it's just how easy it is and how smooth it is. I'm like, hey, that's great. That's great. Um, if you want to read it devotionally that way, okay, fine. But, but please don't tell me simply because of ease where we're avoiding the hard work of... Because what you'll find is with dynamic equivalence, questions get resolved. Questions that in the text are supposed to be ambiguous get resolved because they've got to pick one. When they're trying to get the author's basic thought and the text is intentionally ambiguous, it could go one of two ways. You're not sure which way it goes. A dynamic equivalence will have to, of necessity, pick one of those two ways and go that way. Um, so questions, follow-ups. Oh, here we go. Yes. So, um, I know some people think that the King James version is the Bible, Mm. but you're not saying that, you know, what your reading level allows, like up to the standard of old English or, um, (laughs) right. Well, there's two camps of King James people. There's the King James only, and there's King James best. Frankly, King James only um, is bordering on almost cultish. That's the belief that God re-inspired the King James translation of the Bible, and that it is wicked and satanic to use any other New Age translation. Um, that's not, I think, what you're talking about. There's people who prefer the King James. I think it's the best. King James only, when you press them, will go to double inspiration. I've literally, was out, I was out on the streets in uh, New York doing evangelism, and I got hit, given a flyer for a Spanish-speaking church and it said KJV 1611. And I was like, what on earth? They had translated, their, their translation they were using of the Spanish Bible was not from the Greek and Hebrew, but from the King James. Wow. But 
Um, the, the reason for that, I think, is that people really wrestle with um, the, the, they want, they see Jesus as cer- certainty, and they want certainty, and they don't have answers for what do you do with the fact that we don't have one magic, glow-in-the-dark, perfect copy of the Greek text. Well, one way you can resolve that problem is say, well, God must have re-inspired it into English under King, you know, King James. And the, the problem with that is, um, the textual basis that James used was the uh, Latin Vulgate compiled by Erasmus of Rotterdam. And Erasmus only had a couple dozen Greek texts, and most of them are pretty late. And he did the best job he could, and he did a pretty decent job. But since then, we have found thousands and thousands and thousands of Greek texts. And so the way we reconstruct the New Testament, because we don't have any one perfect copy, is by comparing all the copies we have and then applying the principles of textual criticism to the text. And some of those principles are things like, if you're trying to think through, at the end of the day, the best principle is this. Which reading, if you've got a variant reading, best explains the existence of the others? And so what we've learned is scribes are far more likely to add than to take away. So um, usually the, the shorter reading is better. Because um, what they'll do is a scribe who's copying a parallel account so like what we just read today in Luke is also recorded in Matthew, and Matthew says it a little differently. And the scribe copying his text, may go, well, surely I remember that it said, and he'll add in what Matthew said to harmonize the two, and it gets a little longer. So scribes tend to be far more likely to add than to subtract. They'll also generally try to smooth out difficulties. So the harder reading is generally more accurate. The shorter reading, the reading that has broader geographical support um, it comes from Asia. We've got texts from Asia and from Greece and from Africa all saying this reading. That's generally preferred. The older reading is generally preferred. And, and so on. There's a list of 11 of them. I was just looking at this the other day. So when we compare the um, 5,000 Greek New Testaments we have, and when you compare that to the, um, the other copies, uh, Latin and um, Aramaic, the Church Fathers, you're really at closer to 25,000. We're able to reproduce a ridiculously accurate New Testament, so much so that um, two separate committees, the, uh, the United Bible Society is headed up by Bruce Metzger, now deceased, in their fourth edition, and the 28th edition of the Nestle Aland Greek New Testament are identical. So what that means is two different groups of scholars sifting through the same couple thousand Greek New Testaments produced identical Greek New Testament texts. That's pretty darn accurate. Um, the problem is the, the, the King James is based off of the majority text, which generally is a longer text. So that's where the King James-only folks tend to say things like, our Bible got rid of stuff. There's another way of reasoning. Their Bible added stuff. Um, because Erasmus just didn't have access to a bunch of the oldest stuff going. Um, so, and, and usually the differences are things like titles. So like, um, say, say, one account in, um, say one account in the Gospels has somebody called Jesus Lord and the other call has a master. Um, what we get is copies that have him Lord, Master, Jesus. And, it seems, and it's pretty obvious to understand how that happened. It's far more likely that one scribe, being aware of both of those, wasn't sure which one to pick and put them both in, than two different scribes both chose to cut one off and they cut off a different one. Makes far more sense. But the, so the King James is based off of a later text family. Sorry, we're getting to tech, sorry, text critical stuff. But um, 
the text family it's based off is called the majority text. It's just the most text they had around then. But most of them are from like the 16th, 15th, 14th century. And since then, we've got texts that go back as early as 125 AD. I understand the New Testament wasn't written until 60 to 90 AD. So when we got a fragment of John's gospel from 125 AD, that is really close to when the original writing happened. And um, Dan Wallace has a gospel of Mark, almost whole gospel of Mark, that first initial datings um, came at 70 AD, which is crazy. I mean, that's like a decade. I mean, that is ridiculous. Um, and, and the point of that is there's not simply enough time for legends to emerge. There's simply not enough time for these stories to turn into fables. I mean, we're dealing with the first generation. And so, anyway, does that answer your question, Alarm? I just did a, go off on a bunch of stuff. The King James is a great, if you, got, as a, if you, can, if you can handle the vocabulary of Elizabethan English, um, the King James is an excellent formal equivalence translation. Um, the problem is that a lot of our words have changed meaning. So you'll find in the King James, charity is where we see love. And if you understand charity as love, great. But if you mean charity as a handout, you're going to be confused. Or the word prevent, which used to mean simply to go ahead of, prevent, ventilate. Over time, prevent took on a more narrow meaning, a particular type of going ahead of, a going ahead of so to stop, thwart, get in the way. And if you don't know that, when you read the end of John's gospel, when Peter and John run to the tomb and John prevented Peter, you're going to think, man, what a jerk. But that's not what it means. So if you've got the vocab of the King James, it's a great translation. My only complaint with the King James is because words have changed meaning, it can actually confuse people um, when, you, when you read it if you don't understand that. But it's a great translation, a very accurate translation, and, and some of the most beautiful English prose. I mean, Shakespeare is actually, I don't know if you know this, Shakespeare is brought in to consult on the translation. Well, not the translation, the English phrasing of the Psalms. Smooth out and add poetry to it. I mean, make it make it up meter and stuff. I mean, no one's going to improve upon the twenty third psalm that came. Yea, though I walk through the valley, I mean, it's just beautiful. So it's it's a great great translation if you got the vocab for it, but not many people do nowadays. Okay, other thoughts, questions, observations, complaints. Oh, Renee Lucia, is this about theater? No. Okay, just checking. <laughs> Yes, jacket. Okay. <laughs> um, I was just thinking how when Joseph said to the people who threw him down the well, "You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good." How, in this case, uh, the Pharisees and scribes asking these questions of Jesus. Nowhere else in the Bible that I can think of does it talk about marriage, right? right. And how, and also um, bringing... we wouldn't know. I mean, that's what I was saying earlier on. Jesus' first answer is his own authority. This, yes. these, the first half, there's no marriage in the new resurrection. That is not something you could, I think, get from the Old Testament. He's simply, I'm God's spokesman, so let me tell you. you know. Um, so yeah, we wouldn't know these things about the resurrection if they hadn't challenged him. Continue, yes. Yeah, and also, I never did before today in, in your sermon, thank you for clarifying, understand how um, what Jesus said about I am the God of Abraham. And I never really got it as strongly as, as you helped me to today, um, the difference in that verbiage. So thank you for that. Well, 
Praise God. I remember, I, I don't remember who taught that to me, but I remember the first time that clicked and I, it, the penny dropped and I got like, whoa, okay then. <laughs> you know, I mean, seriously. You know, and, I, and I've spent, you know, I've taken two and a half, three, no, one, that, good grief. Almost four years of Greek. And, you know, when you're wrestling around trying to memorize verbal forms, like, what is the point of this? Passages like this, this is the point. That God's word is so accurate uh, that you can hang things on that level of precision. And, and again, the whole thing falls apart if, if Moses didn't write the Pentateuch, right? Because Jesus says that Moses said in the passage about the bush. And usually when people start to slip into liberalism, the first thing to go is Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch. They reject that, and they reject that Isaiah wrote anything, and it's always communities coming up. So this whole argument falls apart if Moses didn't write it, and if Moses didn't write it 400 years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob died, which means Jacob, Abraham, and Isaac have to be historical figures. Moses has to be a historical figure. The time span has to be accurate. The whole argument hinges on all of that. So we don't just get the inerrancy of the word, but the historicity, everything, um, of the oldest part of the Old Testament. So, you know, that isn't to say people can't ask us tough questions and that we might struggle for answers for, but as we struggle for the answers to the tough questions, have some confidence. Like, there, there are answers out there. It's okay. You know what I mean? Um, Jesus knows what he's talking about. And so I just, I rally around this passage in Luke and just delight in it. And in fact, look at the parallel account in Matthew. Um, I love the, Matthew adds one or two things to it, but if you go to Matthew, um, where is the parallel account in Matthew? 20 something. Um, Matthew 20, no, where is it? 22, 23, that's right. And, and, and while we go there, I'm going to unpack what I said in the message, one other point. One of my big commitments in teaching through Luke, and you've probably picked up on this, is not to try to harmonize the Gospels and not to try to supplement Luke's text with a bunch of extra information from Near Eastern archaeology. Uh, A lot of people, a lot of good people, who I disagree with, think that if you're going to study the Gospels, you need to bring to bear everything we know from archaeology and from history. My problem with that is Luke doesn't think Theophilus knows all that stuff. Luke isn't confident Theophilus knows who the Sadducees are. He has to tell them. And again, I want to understand what Luke's saying. So it, why tell us this if already you have to be an ancient Near Eastern scholar to read these passages? Um, so I find that stuff interesting, but I really want to demonstrate and help you guys get a confidence for it. If you just read the text itself, it has enough information to be understood. So, Matthew will as well tell us, the same day, verse 23, the Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. So Matthew's not even confident his readership is aware of who the Sadducees are. And he very helpfully supplies the necessary contextual information. So, pick it up in verse 29. Jesus said to them, see, Luke's version omits the rebuke. Jesus um, has this to say, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Very secret sensitive. Um, For in their resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriages, but are like angels in heaven. As the resurrection from the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am. There he actually quotes Exodus. He doesn't even quote it in Luke, he references it. he talk, it's, it's the difference between direct and indirect discourse. Direct discourse is you put quotation marks. You know, so Matt Krogman said to me, Hello, Jeremy. You know, and you put Hello, Jeremy in. 
But if I simply said, Matt said hello to me today, that's indirect discourse. I'm referencing what you said, but I'm not quoting what you said. In Luke, it's indirect discourse. In the passage about the bush where he calls him the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's not actually quoting Exodus. He's referencing it. Matthew has a direct quotation. Um, So, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When they heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. And when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, I mean, this, this, everyone was like, whoa. I mean, this is the mic drop moment. You know, it was like, boom. And everyone's just, oh. And the Sadducees are silenced. And I mean, and nobody comes up and says, now, Jesus, you're getting a little overly literal here. My message translation just says, hey, Moses, I'm Abraham's God. Or yeah, whatever it would be. I don't know. I shouldn't try to do that. But not only does Je- the point I'm trying to make is this: not only does Jesus hold this view of the Old Testament, everybody else of his contemporaries does as well. Every one of his contemporaries does as well. Even the liberals of his day have this view of inerrancy. It's not a creation of the Enlightenment or the Reformation. It's 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 the view the people of God have always had about God's word. Um, so. Yeah, it's, it's a wonderful passage. And did you guys get the reference at all? Maybe I can unpack for a minute or two the reference to being hitched or unhitched. Yeah. Okay. Hey, I'll, I'll give you more detail now. I, I, I. What? No, no, that's not a sports analogy. No, that's... Oh, okay. No, recently, Andy Stanley, the, the, the popular son of Charles Stanley, um, came out and made a sermon... Um, I posted a couple Facebook links. You can even a link to the sermon itself so you can hear it in his own words. But basically what he's, he's saying is um, that by trying to defend the Bible, the entire Bible, he thinks the church is taking on a much greater burden than it needs to, and therefore it makes evangelism harder. So the whole motivation for saying this, what he's about to say, is his stated motivation. is his, his desire to see people get saved. And, people, and so... What he's, he's arguing that, you know, if you're trying to say the Bible is the word of God, then that means you've got to defend it, Adam and Eve, you've got to defend the flood, Babel, you've got to defend the slaughter of the Amalekites, you've got to defend all of that, and the unbeliever has got a lot of problems with all of that. And so he argues, he thinks that the early church cut and unhitched, unhitched the Old Testament. Um, no, there's a guy named Marcion who tried to do that in the third century, and he was condemned as a heretic. And this, anyway, but, um, and so what he's saying is, look, if we just surrender the Old Testament, you no longer have to defend the Old Testament. And therefore, we, we un- that's his term, unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, the angry God of the Old Testament, and um, then it'll make evangelism so much easier. I don't know. I don't know. I, I do know that it sounds good, but it's horrific. I mean, and I didn't, I didn't name him the message because my point's not to bully on him or anything, but he's very well-known. He's very popular. I think we've even done a Bible study of his here once. And no, God wants us to be faithful. He, he determines the results. And if our plans and strategies outsmart God, we need to back down and back off. Um, Jesus cites the Old Testament Repeatedly. And just think of what Jesus said, another amazing text on the authority of Scripture. When Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus, right? And the, and the rich man's got an evangelism strategy, 
and it revolves around signs and wonders. Send Lazarus back. And Abraham says, they have the Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. By the way, Moses and the prophets, that's the Old Testament. Um, and it, the rich man says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes back from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham says, my son, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if someone rises from the dead. So Abraham thinks actually the best thing to help someone repent is Moses and the prophets, which is... Oh, yeah, yeah. And Wanda's, Wanda's got a question. So before we get to Wanda's question, let me just make one other point. Think about this. The church at Rome had no apostolic foundation. Paul makes that clear. They had no apostolic foundation, no apostolic teaching, most likely founded by people returning from Pentecost, and a lot of Gentiles are there. They've been maybe around for four, five, six years. How much Old Testament scripture does Paul quote in his letters to the Romans that he's assuming these brand new, untaught Christians know and are familiar with? And what does that tell us about their reading practices? I would guess you and I couldn't track all of Paul's citations in Romans. They're all over the place. And yet he is assuming, I mean, you can picture the modern day, like the come on, Paul, you're expecting these new believers to know the Old Testament? Yes, he did. And that, that was the Bible for the early church, was the Old Testament, and maybe a letter from Paul or, you know, Luke or something. But yeah, that was the Bible. Wanda. Well, I have a couple of questions, but my first comment on the Old Testament is, to me, it just showed God's grace and that we are wicked and we deserve mm. his, I don't know, that's kind of how I came away with it. Yeah, we are not wonderful people, and he was patient with us. Um, but my couple of questions were, um, okay, dealing with marriage, um, we've been to a lot of weddings where the people have lived together, and they're like, okay, so I thought you referenced in the Bible there really isn't a place where God says, you're to marry. I know he says leave and cleave, so maybe that's it. Okay, so that's my question. Yeah. To be able to answer that, no, that's his desire that you actually marry. Sure. And that's my thought, was the leave and cleave. And then, David, everybody, they had all these concubines. Yeah. I don't see where yeah. God ever has said, yeah. uh-uh, don't be doing that. Those, those are fantastic <clears throat> questions. Fantastic questions. So if I could summarize them. Where do we see marriage as distinct from cohabitation? Is that your first question? So like, where do we see like marriage as distinct from cohabitation? And where do we see any prohibition on polygamy? Because if you discount the, uh, an elder must be a one-woman man, where would you disprove polygamy in the, New in the Bible? The whole Bible. That's, that'd be an answer. So let's start. Let's start with Jesus. Um, let's go to uh, Matthew 19. Wanda, those are fantastic questions. So I hope we got time. I hope, think we'll be able to hit this. Um, yeah, Matthew 19. I think I can begin to answer both of them right here. Verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So what's he referencing? 
Genesis, right? And he said, and then he quotes Genesis 2, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. But therefore, God has joined together. Let not man separate. Okay? So marriage has three components, a leaving, a, cle- a cleaving, and a weaving. That's my old pastor used to say. Um, and where you have those three things taking place, you have a marriage. There's no necessity of the state being involved. I got an uber-libertarian friend of mine was arguing with me, saying, I don't need the state to be involved, to be married. I'm like, fine, whatever. Are you, is she your wife, though? You know? Like, I'll grant that. I mean, I think it's good. I mean, the, the basis of the state getting involved is, at its most fundamental level, when you enter into a covenant, you'd bring the community present to witness the covenant, to hold you accountable to the covenant, and the community is, at the basis level, the lowest level of the state, right? And so when you're, that's, that's the state's involvement. The other reason the state generally gets some, the, the other, I think, legitimate purview of the state in marriage is that marriage produces children, and when marriages dissolve, Somebody needs to advocate for the child, and you can't trust the husband and the wife to do that because they're obviously their marriage is falling apart. So the state will step in and, and represent the interests of the child. That's, I mean, whether or not you buy that or that, those are the arguments for the state's interest in marriage. But you, know, you can be married without the state. I mean, at the simplest level, like take, take Abigail. Abigail was married to a man named Nabal, whose name means fool. And... Um, David is fleeing from Saul, him and his men, and he asks Nabal for some resources, some food, and Nabal tells him to get lost. And then Abigail comes out, and she says, you know, I know you're the Lord's anointed, I know you're the king, and here's some resources, please forgive my husband. God strikes Nabal dead anyway. And then David literally just says, took her into his tent made her his wife, which I think just meant he slept with her. Um, and so some people, I don't believe this, but some people think sex equals marriage. Now the reason that doesn't hold up is John 4, the woman at the well, right? You've had four husbands, and the man you're having right now is not your husband. So Jesus does not think that just because she's sleeping with this man right now, he's her husband. So what do we make of that then? I think the answer would be that, um, let me speak carefully and clearly, I think that properly understood, um, intercourse in marriage is the sign of the covenant. So if the covenant is the two becoming one, you get how then this becomes a good sign, picture of that. In other words, the sign of my marriage is not my wedding ring. This is the sign of the sign. This is the sign you guys get to see. But, but there's a reason why even in the law of Moses, there was a community witness to that union that the father of the woman would get the sheet with the blood on it so that if her husband later became jealous and accused her of things, she could present it as proof, right? Because they understood that that was the, the seal, right? That was the, the, the seal on the covenant was sexual union. So I think when David said to Abigail, hey, do you want to go into my tent? I think she understood him as proposing, and I think her consent was her saying yes. So in one sense, sex rightly understood could lead to marriage. But what you need is that covenant understanding. So go now to Malachi. We get another piece of marriage. Um, but then I want to get back to, keep your finger in, in Matthew 19 because I want to get back to that. So in Malachi, we understand that marriage is a covenant. And I think it's implicit in the other texts, but it's, it's explicit here. Um, 
Malachi 2, verse 13. This second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards your offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth who to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So marriage is a covenant. Uh, and and now all the Old Testament's teaching on covenants enters in. The covenants are cut. They're different than contracts. And they're really supposed to end with death, right? Um, so marriage is a covenant. So the question the people living together, have you made explicitly or implicitly lifelong commitments to fidelity and faithfulness, what might be called a covenant? And if the answer is, well, yes, we have, then maybe they are married already. Maybe, right? But it, it isn't simply for now. It's a covenant. So if they've made a covenant, if they've made promises of lifelong faithfulness and fidelity, they may indeed be married. Um, so now we'll go back to Matthew 19. In Matthew 19, now by the way, another notion of Jesus, of, of the state and this community and marriage, where's Jesus' first miracle? It's at a wedding at Cana with a large group of people. So Jesus thinks, Clearly, weddings, it's good to bring the community in. It's good to bring the society into witness. And it's not good for them to run out of wine, so he makes some more. So Jesus implicitly says marriage as this public community event is right on, which is the foundation of the state getting involved, because at that level, really, what is the state at this time but the community? But anyway, I'm sure there's some libertarian who wants to get mad at me. So we'll move on. Matthew um, 19. Jesus points something else out. Now, it's interesting. When Jesus gets mad at divorce, he does not get mad along the lines of Malachi. Malachi rebukes covenant breaking. And covenant breaking is a bad thing, no doubt. But that is not the lines along which Jesus brings his um, criticism of divorce. He says this, citing Genesis 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus insists that when real marriage occurs, God does a uniting that we blaspheme when we try to rend it asunder. This is the, also the basis for why I, I can't, we cannot accept some so-called weddings as weddings. If I don't think God has joined these people together or will join these people together, whatever we want to call it, it's not a marriage. Because Jesus' basis is God did a work in this union. God made the two one. Therefore, what God has joined together, how dare you? Who do you think you are to try to undo what God has done? That's Jesus' rationale. Right? So there's a, a union, a becoming one, pictured in the marriage act that God does. And so that's, on the one hand, why I could go to the wedding of unbelievers. Marriage is a creation ordinance. It's for all peoples. But God still gets to define what it is. So wherever we're getting people making lifelong promises of faithfulness to each other, you've got one man and one woman, sure, we've got the makings of a marriage here. I could go celebrate that. Um, 
but where people want to tamper those down. I'd equally have a problem going to the marriage of a man and a woman if they said, here are my vows, till one of us doesn't want to anymore. <laughs> That's not a marriage. There's no covenant now, right? There's no, there's no promise that's what ought to be promised. So leaving, this, and that's where I think, so now your question about polygamy, we've got two minutes. I would argue, wow, I would argue that if you don't see a prohibition against polygamy in Genesis 2, you will not see it anywhere in the Bible. If the definition of marriage, according to Jesus, citing Genesis 2, is there's a forsaking and there's a cleaving and a weaving, isn't that necessitate no other women? No other men. How do, how do the two become one, then add another person? Do the three become two? The four become three? So I th- you won't find any direct prohibition against polygamy anywhere else if you don't see it in Genesis 2. So I think it's there in principle in Genesis 2. And then the point that Lee was making is that Moses goes out of his way in the Pentateuch. He really does to illustrate the bad fruit of polygamy. Again and again and again. I mean, think about it. If every word of Scripture is profitable and it's there for a purpose and it's good and instructive, then what is the purpose about an episode between Rachel and Leah where they barter for sexual rights with her husband over mandrakes? What important thing do I have to learn from that? The polygamy is messed up. And when two sisters have to pay each other to sleep with their husband, and the result of this family union is the kids are selling each other into slavery... That's messed up. And Moses is highlighting. It's messed up. Guys, this, this does not yield good fruit. And I've tested this hypothesis. Everywhere and always when polygamy shows up, we get to see the bet. So take David. David had many wives. And one of his sons rapes his half-sister and gets murdered by the half-brother avenging her. Again, if your kids are raping and killing each other, that's messed up. And so the text shows us clearly the bad fruit. I don't think there's a single case of polygamy in the Old Testament with any of the main characters where we're not explicitly shown this does not bring good results. I mean, in contrast, right, Saul's a bum. Saul loses the kingdom. Saul, as far as we know, has one wife. His son is a peach. Jonathan is awesome. David is an awful father. I mean, for all of David's man after God's own heart, go to 1 Kings 1, and we'll end on this. Parenting note. Here we go. Um, no, you've got to keep your eyes open for these little tidbits. In 1 Kings 1, if you remember, David had announced that Solomon was going to succeed him as king, even though Solomon is not the firstborn. Solomon has an older brother named Adonijah. And Adonijah, upon... David's not even dead. David's just so old, he's having a hard time getting out of bed. And so Adonijah gets, um, tries to make a, a play to become king... Look at verse 5. Now Adonijah, the son of Hagith, that's one of David's wives, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. And then we get this wonderful, wonderful little parenting note. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? In case you're wondering why this guy is such a punk, it's because David never once put him in check saying, Adonijah, what are you doing? Explain yourself what any parent has done hundreds of times. What are you doing? Who told you? Where did you get that from? Why do you have jam all over your face? You know, whatever, these questions that we ask. David never 
once challenged Adonijah. He's got his way. Well, when you've got that many kids and that many wives, it's hard to keep track of it all. And so again, even in this attempted civil war, the author of Kings is pointing to David and his failure as a parent as part of the cause. So definitionally in Genesis 2, marriage is a man and a woman forsaking all others, joining together, becoming one in an inscrutable way that God accomplishes. Definitionally, I think that excludes polygamy. And if you ask, well, why did God allow it? Well, Jesus has God allowed a number of things because they're hardness of heart. I think it was there for people with eyes to see. I think it was there for people who thought carefully and studied it. There was no direct law prohibiting it. And as far as I know in the New Testament, there still isn't. Find, find the New Testament law forbidding polygamy. Polygamy. If you don't see it in Genesis 2, you're not going to see it anywhere, I don't think. I mean, it, before we close, anyone want to tell me where polygamy is forbidden apart from Genesis 2? Well, I, I think it is. I know, I believe it is. When I'm saying, no, prohibited. But I'm saying, no, no, Naomi, let me, no, 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 what I'm saying is, there is no clearer passage than Genesis 2. If you don't see it in Genesis 2, it's not like there's some passage in the New Testament that says, oh, by the way, you can only have one wife. That's all I'm saying. If we throw out the Old Testament, then we're good. If you throw out, well, if you unhitch yourself from the Old Testament, I guess you can plug things back on the table. I don't know, sorry. Okay. Yes, no, it doesn't specifically say that, no. But isn't that for a king only, though? Yeah. No, that, no, so, no and, and you could argue the elder, one woman, man. Well, elders can't, but where is it across the table prohibited? Absolutely. Kings aren't to multiply wives. Absolutely. But you could always say, well, I'm not a king, right? There's no direct across the boards that I'm aware of. No, maybe there is. I've, I've looked through this two or three times in the last couple of years, but I'm not claiming it's exhaustive. And thank you for keeping me on my toes. Excellent. We are five minutes over time, though. I will let you all go. Have a happy, rainy, thundery Mother's Day.